Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. In this new monthly slot, Rubber Cheese CEO Paul Marden joins me to discuss different digital related topics. In this episode, we're talking about the impact of design, navigation and content on selling tickets and how to go about testing if your design is working or not. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. We're doing something a little bit different on the podcast this season. So alongside the usual guest interviews, which we'll have each month, me and the Rubber Cheese CEO, Paul Marden, are also going to be recording an episode on a different digital related topic. So we're going to do this once a month. Each of the episodes, we're going to share insight around design, user experience, content, accessibility, SEO, and loads, loads, loads more. We're going to talk a little bit about what's possible, give you some ideas about how easy or how hard that topic is to implement, maybe what kind of budget that you might need to look at, and what some of the next steps are to take uh, if you want to implement some of these things. We're even going to call out some of the best in breed websites, people that are doing things really, really well within the sector. So I've been hosting the Skip the Key podcast since July 2019. Goodness, that's been a long, long time. Five seasons in now. We're just about, well, this is season five. And you all know me already. So I am the founder of Rubber Cheese and my background is in design. I co-founded Rubber Cheese back in 2003 after learning about e-commerce when I worked at a very early kind of Shopify type startup agency. The person that you don't know quite as well as me is my fellow host on this podcast. That's funny to say that, my fellow host, um, <laughs> is Paul Marden. So, Paul, hello. Welcome. Hello. This is strange. I'm going to have to share the spotlight for a while. That's <laughs> oh, no. That's not going to seat you. <laughs> no, that's very uncomfortable for me. <laughs> no, it will be fine. Uh, it will be fine, she says. Paul, I would love if you could give us a little intro to yourself. I know your background and I know you very well. We've known each other for about, I think it's about 14 years now. It's been a long, a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, not long after I started doing this as a as a proper job. Well, there you go. Tell us about what your proper job is. Yeah, so uh, I'm the CEO of Rubber Cheese now, uh, alongside another agency that I run called Carbon6, which we merged Carbon6 and Rubber Cheese just over a year ago. My background is as a geek. Uh, I'm a developer by training. I started out uh, 10 years at British Airways, all over the airline doing all different sorts of IT-related jobs. So I saw lots of operational side of things, commercial side of the of the airlines, like selling tickets, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't know if I've told you, but my first visitor attraction job was a long time ago because I, when I was at uni, I did a placement at the National Botanic Garden of Wales when it first opened. So I was there when it was a hole in the ground and oh. I helped them write their IT strategy. So my visitor attraction experience predates my involvement in rubber cheese. I did not know that. So you've done geek stuff for attractions. For a long time, yeah. It was amazing. I can still remember I was in an office in a farmhouse as they were building the giant glass house. It was just the most amazing place. And I've not been back for a long, long time. It would be amazing to go and see the place, how it's transformed in the, what is it, 
24 years since I was there. God, I really sound old now, don't I? You do sound old. I'm just wondering if they still use the IT plan that you put in place for them. Probably not. I was only a student at the time. It can't have been amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So what we normally do on the podcast, listeners, as you well know, is I ask my guests a series of uncomfortable questions, uh, icebreaker questions, which they very graciously answer beautifully for me. Um, We're not going to do that on this episode. Ha, 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 ha. So we thought, yeah, Paul has, has wiped his brow in a, a, a state of relief there. And But what we th- thought we would do is um, Paul and I both visit a lot of visitor attractions, both professionally and uh, and in our personal life as well. Uh, we've both got a, a daughters uh, at very different ages. So Millie is coming up for, like, I think, nine. Ten in two weeks' time. Okay. And my little one is two. So we, we're going to very different visitor attractions right now. Um but we thought we would talk about the attraction that we'd visited most recently and what we loved about it. And we thought we'd ask each other that question. So I am going to ask you that question first, Paul. Yeah. What attraction have you visited most recently and what did you love about it? So we just finished the summer holidays. So we went away for uh, just over a week to the Netherlands. We did visit a few uh, different attractions while through there, but we went to an ama- amazing place. We went back to it, actually. It was one that we'd been to before called Burger Zoo. So I loved the whole experience of going there the first time around and we wanted to go back there. It's an amazing place. But the reason why I was going to call it out today was a conversation that we've been having and something that we've done with kids in museums um, in terms of the food offering. Because when you go to Burger Zoo, the restaurant is amazing. You know, we've talked recently about the sorts of food that you get at, at visitor attractions and your frustration around this this. Lots of fried food, but never any healthy food. So we went to Burger Zoo, we went, we had lunch, and of course there's the obligatory portion of chips there if you want to have it. Um, lots of kids' food there. But I was able to have a massive, great salad. It was in all and it was lovely and healthy and really enjoyable. And it didn't cost the earth when you were there. And it's it was it it's so unusual to talk about going to an attraction and getting that kind of quality of food without spending the earth in doing it so yeah that that was pretty cool that is cool this is probably another a whole another podcast episode to talk about that i think actually in your intro you forgot to mention that you are a a trustee for kids in museums um which is quite it's quite it's a quite a new role for you isn't it but it's one that's kind of immersed you into into the world of attractions i I think that's been a good one for you um They have set up a brilliant scheme, which is a, is kind of an accreditation scheme for attractions to go through to just to, just to check into how healthy and and how great their food offering actually is, which I think is brilliant. Um, it's really weird. The day that they launched it, I was having a like literally the day before I was having a conversation on LinkedIn about how atrocious the food offering had been at an attraction that I went to, which is one of the top 10 most visited attractions in the UK. It's a great place. It really is a brilliant place, especially if you've got toddler. Um, however, the food was pretty horrendous. And I've got an unusual toddler in that. Well, she will eat chips now. She will eat chippies. Um, but she's not like she won't eat fried stuff or battered things or anything like that. She's just not interested. So, if, you know, beige. not really. Even pasta has to be, you know, she's <laughs> She should have been an Italian. They should have seen the amount of pasta that she wolfed down when we were over there. But it's got to be good. It's got to be good. Um, so, yeah, she is a particularly fussy toddler. Um, but but just for myself, I mean, just the range of food that was on available that day was just dreadful. I mean, like the healthiest thing 
that that was on the menu that, that Lee and I both had was jacket potatoes and a I think I took a picture of it somewhere and I, I was, it was too awful to put on social media. So, yes, that is well needed. And I'm glad that that attraction stood out on the feed front for you. What about you? Well, where have you been recently? I've been to lots of different places recently, but this one I can't stop thinking about. And so I want to talk about it today. And it's not one that I visited with Edie. It's one that I visited with a, a fellow attractions professional a little while ago. Um, but it's Beamish Living Museum. I honestly can't stop thinking about it. it. It's the first living museum that I've been to. So it's the first experience of that for me. And I had such an emotional reaction to it. I'm a bit embarrassed, actually. So I went to meet a couple of people. I, I, I met um, one person that I'd met uh, briefly at a, at a conference before. And then, and, and then I met one of their colleagues who I'd never met before in my life. And I actually had a bit of a cry <laughs> to this colleague um, because I was so... It was so emotive. For anyone who hasn't been to Beamish Living Museum, there's lots of different areas that you can visit. And one of them is a 1950s area. And they essentially recreate what it was like in the 1950s when the museum is located. And it brought back so many memories of my grandparents, both sets of grandparents for different reasons. The house was very similar to to my grandparents on my father's side. And um, just down to some of the things that they had in that space, and I just got, I just got overwhelmed by it. It was so wonderful to go back and see that. And, and in my head all the time, I was thinking, well, like both my sets of grandparents are no longer with us. Um, they passed away when I was in my early 20s. And so Edie will never get to meet her great grandparents on that side. And I thought, God, how amazing would it be for me to bring her here and say, you know, show her some of the things that great granny used to have in her house. And yeah, just lost it. <laughs> interesting isn't it that you can become so immersed that even now the emotional attachment that you built when you were there it takes you straight back there because there's a risk isn't there with that those sorts of places that it's feeling a little bit plastic and fake isn't it but but this clearly had an emotional impact on you yeah I, I think for me I was worried that um it would be people in costumes it yeah. would feel like that and it did not feel like that at all it it, it just felt so so authentic anyway if you've got to go I, I i don't want to i don't want to cry for the rest of this podcast but um yeah, yeah it's it's definitely a must visit for me it, it was it was something really really special excellent should we move on to what we're going to talk about and, I, and i'll compose myself shall we okay <laughs> moving swiftly on <laughs> let's so in this episode we're going to talk about the impact of design navigation and content on selling tickets um and how we go about testing if it's working or not. So this episode actually launches on the 4th of October, which is one day after we release uh, the 2023 Visitor Attraction website reports. There's data that has come out of this year's report that is so insightful, and I cannot wait for everybody to get this year's report. It dives deeper into a lot of the topics that we talked about in the first report last year, but there's just so much more to it. And I'm very, very excited about it. Anyway, looking at the data from the report, 100% of the attractions that took part think that having consistent design and clear navigation is important, which is brilliant. Big tick there. However, many of them don't think that their site meets the need. And some of them think it does, but they don't test that it does. 
there's some really interesting stats about testing that we're going to talk about in a minute that have actually blown my mind a little bit. But one good stat around the design is that 70, yeah, 76% of respondents believe that their websites were consistently designed despite using multiple platforms in their customer journey. And this is something that we talked about quite frequently in that sometimes there's a big disconnect if you are using, if you've got your, your website is, is built and designed in WordPress, for example, and then you've got your ticketing platform and the two don't look like each other. They're, 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 they're not consistent. They're incongruent. That can be a bit of a challenge with people in terms of like trust and, and how they feel about your brand. It can be a jarring experience, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. Responses this year once again saw that websites that look good and are easy to use are doing far better than those that don't prioritise consistency. So I'm just going to read out this this snippet from the report. We saw that websites that were high scoring for their design and navigation made more sales over the past 12 months. So those successful websites had around 200,000 to 500,000 completed transactions. Whereas on the other hand, websites with lower design and navigation scores didn't do as well stating that they had below 50,000 completed transactions in the last month. That's quite fascinating, isn't it? It is. This is not just a handful of people that are answering, is it? Because so there's a large number of people that are answering that this is important to them and that they think they're doing quite well. And then you see how their perception of doing well correlates really strongly with the actual out- outcomes of the site itself. Yeah, I think that the way that we ask the questions this year is in, is interesting as well. So when I when I talked then about we said that websites that were high scoring for design and navigation, we gave respondents the options to score their website. So we gave them, you know, that's how well designed do you think your site is between one and 10, 10 being the highest. So we allowed them to kind of self score. But it's interesting because some of those self scores don't correlate to the data that we then took. So those scores, they're based mostly on assumption which is always a difficult and challenging place to be but I think Paul you had some insight here around the conversion rate and design and how they tally up so the 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 stats you just talked about were about the volume of transactions and and you you could say that having good design leads you to have more transactions flowing through your website but you could also say that the organizations that have more transactions flowing through their website can afford to spend more money on design but what I found interesting was that when you ignore the absolute number of sales that they make on the website, if you actually look at what their conversion rate is on the website, the attractions who think they have good design tend to have a higher conversion rate by about 1% or 2%. Now, that could be on a low base. You know, there could be a fairly small um, attraction that has fewer people coming to it, but they still perform relatively better than those attractions that didn't think they had good design but could be massive organizations yeah with large numbers of transactions flowing through and what i found interesting is we started to work out what is the value of one or two percent extra conversion rates it doesn't sound like much really that somebody in the business that doesn't necessarily understand the technology side of it, that doesn't sound like a lot. So we started playing with converting that into money. What could that actually be worth? So we played around with, we tried to model what is our average attraction and what is the absolute top performing attraction. And even for our average, 
an increase of 1% in conversion rate could mean tens of thousands of pounds of extra sales that they make. Yeah. And but for the top performing attraction, it could make the difference of hundreds of thousands of pounds of extra sales just by squeezing one or two percent of extra conversion rate out. So there's I think that's absolute gold dust in terms of insight that we've drawn out of this data. The organizations that think they have good design tend to have a conversion rate of one or two percent more, which could equate to tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds of extra sales that they make. It makes you begin to think that that investment in the design of the site could actually be, you know, really worthwhile. Absolutely. And information like that helps the marketing managers build the case for good design and investing in good design. Yeah. And before you say, oh, the large organizations with the big budgets, they can afford to do this. What about the small, small ones? Um, the smaller organizations with small budgets who had good navigation tended to be the ones that would have the better conversion rate amongst their peers. So, you know, you don't need to be a nationally recognized attraction brand to be able to invest an appropriate amount of money in design and get a return on that investment that you make. I always think that the best use of budget is on the pre-planning side, which is unusual coming from a designer, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so my back my background is design. So I was a trained graphic designer. That's how I kind of started out in my career. And But Paul is, you're really data driven, aren't you? You're super data driven. Such a geek, aren't I? Yeah, you are. You are a massive geek, massive nerd. We're we're very complimentary. Um, (laughs) But I never used to be very data driven. I was always far more visual driven. But actually, I've got, well, I'm not going to share it on this podcast, actually, because I'm going to share it at a talk that I'm giving. But I've got a really good story around why user testing is is uh, is very very important um we'll come a bit more onto that later and, and why you should be driven by the by the data and the stats and not just by what something looks like okay let's talk about navigation quickly uh, as part of this design section so it's really interesting so we've actually got some findings from the journal of market research so they state that when websites are easy to understand and navigate individuals have a lower cognitive load so fewer things to work out uh, and therefore are more likely to have a positive experience and go on to purchase. So having a consistent and well-designed website can really help people make complete purchases with your visitor attraction. So, you know, it, it, what I've always said, it's about trying to stop making people think, you know, give them something that is really easy. So I think when we when we worked with Eureka, and this is, this is back in 2016 when we first worked with them, we did some research around like what people wanted to find out about attractions like what was the what were the first things they needed to know about and it was literally when you open how much do you cost how can I get there so you know if they're the three things that people desperately need to know they're the three things that that really need to be highlighted front and center when you arrive at the site wherever you arrive at it whether that's the homepage or, or what and it's the same with navigation like people need to understand what where they're being taken and why they're being taken to certain places so um we're working with an attraction at the moment. Um, we're just about to start work with them. They have got some really key, like really strong elements to their nav, but then they've got an area that says more. 
and there's a load of stuff that's been added into the more section and it's it, it you know things things like this happen over time when you've got a website you know people will, will say i need this i need this to be featured on the site i need this page to put up there and it gets added to and and, and ultimately you end up with all these things that haven't been thought about from the start about where they're supposed to go so they get kind of bundled somewhere and a more section these kind of feels an obvious place to put them but like what what is it like users don't understand what's in there and they're not going to go searching for hours to find something that they want they need to find it quickly and so that's for me is a is a is a huge no-no about bundling stuff into these kind of sections that just are, are just so ambiguous they, you don't know what they are i think that figuring out what people are trying to do what are they trying to get out of the website i think that bundling exercise putting lots of things onto the site that happens over time of putting it in a bucket of more is often you get there's so many people in an organization that want their content heard and seen don't they so you know everybody wants their content on the site it all goes on there and sometimes you have to step back and think what's the point who, who is it that's coming to the site and what are we trying to get them to do? We want the customer at the end of it to think, now that you've read this, what are you going to do next? But we don't always think about that journey. We think about the snippets of information that we put onto the site, but we don't think about what the journey is they're going through. The transitions are really lucky, I think, because a lot of the people that go to their sites are really motivated to buy, a lot more motivated to buy than the average e-commerce site. So how do you get out of the way of those people so they can just buy stuff? And then for the people that are less motivated, that are still, you know, they don't they don't necessarily want to know how, when, and how much. They, they, they still want to be sold on the idea of going to the attraction. Then maybe you need to give them more information. But identifying who those people are and giving them a journey to go through and, that, and coming up with a navigation that makes it really, really easy for those people to navigate along that journey. There's a lot of psychology for that. That's hard. That's your prep work, isn't it, before you do the design? Yeah, and it's the hardest part of it. And I think that's where where the the amount of the most amount of time needs to be spent there in the wireframes, really. You know, the design, if you've got good brand guidelines in place, the design it ultimately becomes a simplified process at that point. But the pre-design work is really where where the time and effort needs to be spent. And I think it is it is a challenge for attractions. So there are attractions that are if you compare a Chessington World of Adventures, for example, a, a theme park orientated to a historic museum that you're that you're coming to visit, that not only is an attraction, but also obviously has a lot of historical information to share and learning and education. Uh, it plays a big part in them as well. You have different audiences for those. So I think one part of that process is you need to think about all the different audiences you have and and what are their motivations for visiting the site and what you want, what do you want them to do? What actions do you want them to take? But I think when you are working, it's just this has gone off on a bit of a tangent, but when you're working with an agency, I think what's really core for the attraction is to make sure that you've got key stakeholders that from each of those areas of your attraction that play a part in in those early conversations so you know you don't want the site redesign to be driven solely by um, the marketing team for the attraction side you need someone from the education uh, side to be part of those conversations as well you need visitor experience to be part of those conversations because if you're planning content each of those individuals will have a different need for what content they need to showcase on the site so you know they all need to be talking to each other about how that's going to look. 
I'm talking from experience because this has not happened in the past. And I'm <laughs> Paul's nodding his head at me because he knows that we've had this challenge previously. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. And and I think that, that kind of leads us nicely onto content, really, um, and about the need to frequently update your site and keep it refreshed. So once you've done all of that hard work of working out what content is going to be on it, it doesn't stay static. Um, so we, uh, in the report, we have a stat that says 31% of respondents said that they updated their online content multiple times a week. That's good. Uh, another 31% said that they did so at least once a month. Good. However, 22% of respondents said they had infrequent content updates or didn't update their content at all. Not updating your content at all. That surprised me, that one. Yeah. The, I, I was surprised that there were but 31% of respondents updated it multiple times a week. I was really impressed by that. Yeah, that, that takes a, that takes some some work, doesn't it, to be able to produce that level of, of mm. content change. But to uh, do it infrequently or not at all, that surprised me. I guess it depends on the attraction and what their offering is as well. Thinking about one of our clients, Holcomb, actually. So we know that Holcomb update their website frequently. They have a lot of different events. They write a lot of really incredible content about what happens across Holcomb's estate. So they're engaging with the audience uh, from the perspective of someone coming to visit and what they can do on the day and uh, what they can come and see. But they're also talking about their wider sustainability efforts across the state and, and what they do and how they focus on that, which again, might be for that that same audience might be for a slightly different audience as well so the volume of content that they produce is a lot higher than potentially thought park as a visitor you know they will talk about what's on that day and maybe an events that they're running but they might not talk about the same things that are going on across the estate that holcomb would for example so i think yeah it's what what your attraction offers Holcomb's a really good example because they can take inspiration from the place. They're very diverse. They've got lots of different things that they do at that location. Yeah, it's quite a large location, but there's lots of different things going on. And those things are inside and outside. Hmm. They can take inspiration from the season. So there's a lot of inspiration that you can take there and produce. I, you know, just off the top of my head, I could think of lots of different stories that you could tell and changes to the site that can be inspired by the season. But then I think about a theme park where there's lots that goes on. At, you know, I think I've done lots of trips to Legoland. There's Legoland at Halloween. There's Legoland at, in springtime. You know, it changes through the seasons and there's, there's a lot of story around that. I wonder if you're an indoor attraction, if you're, if you're heritage museum based, there's going to be lots of stories that you can tell about the items that you've got in your collection but it might be harder to tell those stories influenced by the seasons, which can be a real driver for telling varying stories throughout a year, can't they? Yeah, but then yeah. I don't write a lot of stories for those sort of organisations, so maybe, maybe I don't have the right view of the world, but I would imagine it would be a lot harder to write lots of, of content varying through the year for that sort of organisation. Yes, probably so. I'm just thinking about it would just be a change in topic, wouldn't it? So I know that, you know, Blackpool Pleasure Beach, who uh, Andy Highgate, the operations director, came on the podcast a couple of seasons ago, actually, and he talked about um, the experiences they've developed around walking up the big the big one and the, and the, yeah. and the, the rise that they have there. And actually, I think for, for people that are interested in theme parks, there's probably a lot of content around 
how things are built and how they're developed and that and that kind of side of stuff that people would be really interested in so it's not so much season it's not talking about seasonal stuff it's about the things and how they're constructed and how they're designed and kind of stuff like that so yeah again it just it comes back to just knowing your audience and and what what are they interested in and how you can engage them and and what are your potential new audiences as well and how can you d- develop content that attracts them there is a correlation between content and purchases though which is quite interesting so our report shows that those who were deliberate in ensuring their content was kept fresh and engaging saw an average of 25 to 50,000 completed website purchases a year whereas those who didn't on average had around 10,000 completed purchases in the same time frame that's interesting um in addition of the respondents who recognized the need for regular content updates but weren't actioning them 23% stated that their average sales conversion rate sat between 1 and 4% which is below the benchmark for the sector so the sector benchmark is 5% now so that's yeah. it's that 1% is significantly low absolutely Shall we move on and talk about some testing? Because I know you think this is really interesting. Oh, yeah, I really do. So there is a statistic in the report that I had to reread a few times, actually, to believe. So last year's survey and report, we had about 70 attractions take part. This year has been significantly more than that. We got 188 attractions from uh, up and down the UK and Europe take part, which was incredible i am one in north america as well i was really excited when i saw that one yes yes we went international yeah that was exciting um okay so think about this 188 attractions took part in this 70 percent of the respondents have never conducted user testing of any kind on their website 70 (laughs) percent That's actually not the worst stat, though. I'm going to save the worst stat for another episode. But um, that's not that's not the one that shocked me the most. But this one is really surprising. We've talked a bit about making assumptions about how well your website is perceived by people. Hard data from actual users is 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 the key to designing a website that is that has an improved user experience because it can clarify problem areas. Um, and identify where your most effort is needed to create a really great online experience. So if you're not asking your users how they're interacting with the site and, you know, do they like it? Can they buy things well? Can they find what they want? Like, how do you know if it's good or not? It's blowing my mind. It's really hard, isn't it? Really yeah. hard. And I think it's really, you wrote this down, actually. It's really important to be aware of a familiarity bias. So just because you think your website's easy to navigate doesn't mean other people is it's because you're familiar with it so you understand where where things are which is really interesting actually I've just been reminded of a conversation that I had with somebody when I was at an attraction now I can't name this attraction uh, we're working with them um, and we're under NDA but they asked me about a website that we'd redesigned they said oh you did this website didn't you I said yes you yeah. went I can't find this thing anymore that I, I used to be, I, I couldn't find it. It took me ages to find it before. And I was like, all oh, right, where did, what, what is the thing? And he, he talked about what it was. I said, oh, well, it, it would be in this area. And he said, yeah, which makes sense. But before it was over here and I knew where it was and it, and it just feels a bit weird now. And I said, do you think it was in the right place before? Oh, no, 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 should, no, shouldn't, shouldn't have been. Okay. So it, it's that it's just because you know where it is doesn't mean it's actually in the right place. It's just what you get used to over the years. It is incredibly hard to put yourself into the position of the person that knows nothing about your organisation. 
trying to imagine what the what the customer is going through takes a lot of effort and i think that you can get data to be able to do that but a lot of um, there's kind of a, a levels of kind of understanding of that putting yourself into that customer's position the, the empathy that is required lots of people that we meet and work with will talk about how they want their site to be structured and what makes sense to them some people then will go the next stage and think about what they think their customer wants. And then there's a stage beyond that, which is not even trying to put themselves into the customer position, but actually test what the customer thinks. It's really hard to have the empathy to understand if you know nothing, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And there's loads of stuff that you can do. I'm sure we'll come on to that later on to try to understand and, and test. But just sitting somebody down and, and watching them going from zero to hero and buying your tickets is a valuable thing that you could do, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, the report on the survey is anonymous. All the data that we get from it, we we don't talk about the people that have sub- submitted it and we don't talk about them. There was a number of websites within the data set that were doing really well in terms of both design and navigation and the impact that they were having on their conversion rate. So we reached out to um, these organisations to ask if we could talk about them today, and all of them were very happy for us to talk about it. So we have had their permission. I think I'll hand over to you, Paul, because you've been doing the analysis over on on these sites. It's really lovely to see that that Roman Baths are on this list. because They were on the list. Because they've been on the podcast, and and they're they're our podcast alumni. So that was good. Yeah, more than once, I think, as well. Yes, they have been. Um, so, yeah, so what I was looking for were who were the organisations that thought that they had good design and navigation in their site? But I didn't think that was really enough because, of course, you could think that it was good and it it it, it isn't very good. So what, what could I dig into the data to try to pull apart the people that thought they had good design and following through from that good design actually had good outcomes. And and Roman Baths was up there in in that that top set of organizations that had they thought they had a good, consistent, high quality design, but they also had a conversion rate up there in in the top ratings that we had inside inside the data set. Obviously Roman Baths really, really well known organization. Um, you know, lots of, of international visitors will be going there. There was another that I pulled out in the data set, which was also a really high-profile brand. London Zoo came out in that top set. Also past podcast That's guests. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Yes, lovely people. Um, so they also thought they had good consistent design, but coincidentally also had good quality conversion rates up there in the top, top performers in, in the data set. But to avoid you saying to me, oh, but all these are all big internationally recognized brands, what, what's design got to yeah. do with it? Up there, we've got uh, Raymond Bass, London Zoo, big, well-known brands. But there's also some uh, organizations that I wasn't familiar with in that, that data set. So there were there were organizations that are probably more regional, less, less internationally well-recognized brands. Um, and one of those that, that considered that they had good quality design and they also had high levels of conversion rates alongside that but Smithwick's experience in Kilkenny in Ireland uh, it's a it's an attraction that is a, a brewery tour uh, that I thought that one was really interesting when I went and looked at it it was really easy to navigate around the site ridiculously easy to go and buy tickets you know you get 
you go onto the site, it's right there to be able to buy those tickets to go to that experience. So I think that it, it that told me that that you didn't need to be a big, well-recognized brand to be able to devote the time and attention and budget that's needed to get a good design, which then has the impact on your conversion rates. Yeah, this this is not just for the big brands. This is also for, for other brands, smaller regional brands that can maybe not devote the same level of investment to it that a large organization can, but they can still have good outcomes from good design. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say we do ask questions in the report about budget, but we don't ask them specifically. So we haven't asked, we don't, for example, know uh, the investment that Roman Biles, London Do or Smithwicks have made in their website to get it to where it is now. We haven't, we literally have no idea. So their budgets could be phenomenally big. They could be phenomenally small. We just, we have no idea whatsoever, but we know that they have invested in good design and they've done it to a really great standard, which means it's, it's easy for people to make purchases. Therefore their sales are sitting at a really great, a great level. Um, the Roman bars, I just, a little shout out to Simon Addison actually, because Simon did come on to the podcast a couple of times now. And actually he came on to a recent episode where we talked about, the value of the, of this report and the survey that we carry out, and, and this is its second year now, and we can see the value in terms of its the data that we've been able to, to glean from it is is so much more insightful this year. Um, the key insights themselves are much more in depth than they were last year. But one thing that Simon mentioned is that and we don't work with Roman Baths. So I've, I've made that clear on the last podcast. We we didn't design their website. We've not worked with them. They did use the report to inform some of the decisions that they made about designing their website and making changes to it which i think is so great right this the report is actually actively doing what we set out for it to do regardless of whether anyone comes to work with us or not someone can take this report and use the insights from it to inform their their current agency to make changes to their site that are going to make a significant difference to their bottom line well done us <laughs> Well done, us, but well done, everyone that's responding as well. Oh, whatever. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> no, well done, everyone. Thank you. I say, so I just think it's really impressive, isn't it, that we've got, you know, what was it? You said 180 something respondents from across the sector. It's so hard in a in a tough industry. There's lots of industries where no people would not work together. This is a collaborative exercise in sharing your data. That takes a certain confidence within the sector to be able to be willing to share that information so that then somebody like us can then do the graph that aggregating that and seeing the interesting stories that people can then use to make things better there's so many places where you would not see that happen it's a wonderful part of the sector that collaboration and that willingness to share and be open about things right let's talk about next steps then because we talked about some of the items within design navigation testing We've talked about who's doing it well. Let's wrap this up with next steps that you can take if you think some of these things are relevant to you and you want to do something about them. I think the first thing to do is do some testing, do some testing, do some testing. And you can do that in a variety of ways. <laughs> do you want me to test some stuff? <laughs> Let's do some testing. Let's test. Look, there's loads of ways that you can do user testing. If you're going through the process of a redesign at the moment, Go back to your wireframes, make them um, interactive, do some internal testing, do some external testing. You can do this in multiple ways. So you can do focus groups, get bums on seats in front of computers and 
Give them some things that you want them to do on your site. Don't tell them how to do it, but just give them some things that you want them to achieve. I want you to buy a ticket. I want you to tell me how easy it is to go and find the interactive map. I want you to find a blog post and and can you get from the blog post to buy a ticket? Some of those things, you know, this doesn't need to cost you a huge amount of money, right? You all have an asset in that, hey, would you like a free ticket to our venue if you come and do some testing for us put on a little bit of lunch put on some you know people are really happy to help and give you feedback in that way so that doesn't need to be a huge a huge cost at all um you can use online tools so uh we use tools like usertesting.com you can select a, a certain demographic that you want to test out and you upload what you want them to test and then you, they go off and they do it and they record videos and you can see how they interact and they they talk through you know what they're doing and how easy it was for them to do those things as well they are not a huge costly um i, I actually don't know off the top of my head there's a, there's a, there will be a, a fee to use the system which will be a monthly fee and then there'll be a fee probably for that will cover x amount of tests within that monthly fee so it, it would probably be from what 150 maybe a month something like that maybe a bit more the cost depends as well on factors how many factors you place on the do you only want people to do user testing that are of a particular demographic and age you know if if your attraction has mainly parents with young kids coming do you want your user testing to be done only by parents with young kids when you add more constraints to it the cost of doing it becomes higher but arguably the quality of the data that you get back from the testing is more relevant to you you can do this with i mean i've talked about going back to the wireframe stage you can do this at any point so you know great do a load of testing before you go ahead and release something to the world but if you've got something that's up and running now do some testing so you can do user testing on what you already have you can do exit surveys so you can ask people once they've bought a ticket you can ask them how easy that was what did you find difficult what were your challenges you know at the end of a, a of your purchasing journey so there's you know, small little things you can do there. The world has changed a lot, hasn't it? In the last few years, we've moved to almost mm. exclusively online sales beforehand. So we've got this massive pool of data, of contact information of the people that have bought your ticket. You know, that that's such a great resource that you could use, which in previous years, pre-pandemic, it would have been a struggle because a large chunk of your people would have been walk-ins who you didn't necessarily, it wasn't easy to capture those sorts of contact details and follow up with them. Yeah, exactly. And then I think there are things that you can do in terms of looking at your uh, user experience and the design side of things. If we we do things like UX reviews for people, um, we actually offered one as a prize for all of the people that entered the survey this year, and the the lovely people at Cheddar Gorge won that. And um, we're going to be we're going to be looking at that in a couple of months for them. Back near my home, proper. That, that's that's Cheddar Gorge with where I went as a kid, Luke. So that's exciting. To be oh, doing that's that good. One. Oh, well, we'll, we'll be carrying that out later on, uh, later on in the year for them. Um, so yeah, there's things that you can do in terms of you know working with an agency to look at what your what your user journeys look like. Are they correct for the audience that you have? Does your design flow? You know, where are the barriers that you're that you're seeing? And 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 again, if you're looking at some of the data of where you're seeing people drop off. Is that a design issue? Is that a function issue? You know, how do we work those things out? There's loads of tools, isn't there, as well, like Hotjar that you can stick on, which doesn't cost a lot of money. And it's not just Hotjar. There's lots of other tools just like it, um, which would give you insight into the behavior of the users on the site. It's just a snapshot that you get for free. But that snapshot could really help inform decision making about 
maybe I need to make it easier for them to find the button because they're finding it hard to book tickets or whatever. Because they can't see where they need to book their tickets. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think in summary, do some testing is what I'm going to end this podcast episode with. Do some testing, come back and tell us what you find. <laughs> Exciting. I'd love <laughs> to have those conversations. Um, as ever, if you if you want to get in touch with either of us, uh, all of our contact details are in the show notes. Um, if anything has sparked your interest that we've talked about today, we're we're really happy to answer any questions and things like that. So if you um, do want to ask any questions about any of the kind of stats that we've talked about, again, just our email addresses will be in the show notes. And you also, if you haven't downloaded the report yet, why not? Because it's out. It launched yesterday. We did a webinar. Did you come to it? Why not? If not. Um, <laughs> but if you do uh, want to go and download the report, we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. But just head over to the rubbercheese.com website and you'll be able to find it. We'll see you next time. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.